Well, let's begin by playing a little bit of Christian Lingo Bingo. Oh, it's all right. I don't, I'm good. Thank you. Uh, if you've heard five of any of the following statements or something like them, just yell out bingo. All right? Here we go. There's a time and a season for everything. No, 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 no. When you've heard five, that's when you say bingo. God opened a door for me to go. Uh, you have to belong before you believe. And there's a variation on that one which says, and if you, you have to believe before you behave. Uh, I know that I look like a Christian, but you don't know what God is doing in that person's life. For those keeping count, that's number four. Who am I to judge? Judge not that you be not judged. Bingo? Anyway, <laughs> that's the moment, that's the moment. It's number five. Uh, you've, you've heard, I assume, at least some of them, if not all of them. And now, ask yourself, are each of those statements true? How often do you assess whether the things that we often say as Christians are actually true statements? Well, this morning, uh, as perhaps you've already picked up, as we said before, we're talking about judgment, the implications of God's judgment of Jesus as the judge. And that last phrase that I just said about judging that you be not judged uh, may seem like something that is contradictory to our passage this morning. Don't you think? Judge not that you be not judged, and yet we've just read, uh, you are to judge those inside. And so if you're wondering uh, how those two passages actually fit together, we will get to that. Uh, but this morning, the question I want us to be turning our minds to as we go through this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 is, as the church... Whom are we supposed to judge? As the church, whom are we supposed to judge? It seems evident that we are to judge somebody. And so who is that? Last week we uh, looked at the first half of 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 8, and this week we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 13. And so as Braden mentioned, the whole chapter goes together, and so even though what we're going to be looking at in, in this half of the chapter uh, will have a slightly different emphasis to what we looked at last week, they all hang together. What Paul is doing in this section uh, is expanding on what he, the instruction that he has already given to the Corinthians about this immoral man. And so Paul asks two questions in verse 12, as you'll see in your Bibles there, that he actually answers in verse 13 about dealing with outsiders and insiders. But those two questions are actually what sits underneath this entire passage. And so this morning, those questions are going to shape my two points today. And so with our Bibles open, let's explore this text. And we'll begin with point one, which is, God judges outsiders. God judges outsiders. Paul asks in verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
what have I to do with judging outsiders? Outsiders doesn't really sound like a very nice or friendly term, does it? Uh, This is the kind of term that we use to describe people who aren't part of our tribe or who aren't allowed into our secret club. And yet here it is. Paul describes people who are outside the church as outsiders. And he summarizes what he's describing in verses 9 to 10 by asking this rhetorical question. So what we see here is God giving us, through the Apostle Paul, the design of his church. There is a clear, bright line between those who are outsiders and those who are insiders. Now, to be clear, Paul isn't advocating for sectarianism here. He's not advocating for monasticism. After all, he assumes later on in the letter that there are actually going to be unbelievers present in the gathering of the church. So he's not suggesting that churches need to become exclusive brethren, where you you actually lock the gates when you meet and you're not allowed to let anybody else in. And this, of course, makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus calls us to be the salt and the light of the world. And so you can't be salt if you stay inside the salt shaker, and you can't be light if you live under a basket. Well, you can, but you can't share any of that with anybody else. Uh, That's Jesus' point, that in order to be salt and light, we actually need to go out into the world. Your light needs to shine before others. And so we can't actually fulfill the Great Commission if... Uh, we're living off the land in Humpty Doo and, you know, never come into contact with anybody and love to just, you know, sleep under trees and hang with the animals and that's all we're going to do. We're not going to be able to make disciples of all nations if that's how we end up living. And this is Paul's point at the start of this section that there are those who are outside who are not in the church. Let's have a read from verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all, meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. Paul here is talking about uh, another letter that he'd written to the Corinthians that uh, we now no longer have access to, where he must have given them this instruction not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, the image behind not to associate is that of mixing up together, which is he's using now here in in a social way, saying we're not to uh, mix with other people from who are those sinners. And obviously, in his previous letter, the message somehow got lost on the Corinthians. Clearly, they misunderstood what Paul meant, um, which required Paul's clarification in these verses. And that is what he will go on to do. And he's saying, those outside the church, those who do not claim to be Christians and who are not members of your church, of course, he says, of course they're going to be sexually immoral and greedy and swindlers and idolaters. Now, obviously, he's not saying that every person is going to be every single one of those sins. But he's making it clear that every person who is an outsider 
is a person who loves their sin. They have a heart that still loves the world and everything in it more than Jesus. And surely there's nothing wrong with saying that. Uh, Is it not true that if you asked any of your non-Christian friends whether they loved Jesus or something else more, whether it's their, their car or their job or their spouse or their best friends, surely the answer would be a no-brainer. You might even be here and you're in that boat. I mean, it makes sense. Why should you be expected to pretend like you love Jesus and are willing to die for Him more than anyone else if that's not even true? That's not something that you need to try and hide. And so that's, that's Paul's point. Of course, you can't avoid being around people who love sin more than Jesus because by definition, that is everybody who is not a Christian. And so he's saying, wherever you go, people who, don't, who have not turned to Christ in repentance and faith, well, by definition, they are those people. And in Corinth, of course, this was even more obvious. As we talked about in our first sermon on this series, Corinth was something of an ancient version of Las Vegas. Paul is marking a very clear, bright line of distinction between those who are in the church and those who are outside the church. What have I, he says, and indeed, what what have you, what have we to do with judging outsiders? It would be just as absurd to think that you as a Christian should go to a Buddhist and say to them, hey, can you tell me how I should live my life? It would be the same thing if we were to go out and start telling people how they should live. Their hearts are not the same as ours. And so what this does is it it profoundly frees us up to go into all the world and go to every place and to every kind of people, no matter how bad, no matter how wicked the world might think they are, and we can tell them the good news about Jesus. Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 15, not to take them out of the world, but for them to remain in it and to resist the evil one. That's how we get the message out. We don't do it by extracting ourselves from the people. We don't do it by saying, oh, there there are filthy sinners out there. I don't want to go near them. That's not how it works. We go into the world and we ask to be kept from the evil one, kept from temptation. And so we don't go into the world and simply try to judge non-Christians and tell them what they should do. No, we bring them the gospel. Of course, uh, Paul answers his own question in verse 13. He says, God judges those outside. We as the church are not called to judge those outside. And now, just to be clear, this is a different thing to say, working towards a just society or trying to help people in in certain areas and uh, improving their lives or holding government to account and that sort of thing. But that's a different conversation. 
The context of this judgment that Paul is talking about is the day of the Lord, when Jesus returns and He will judge everyone. Paul has already mentioned this day in verse 5 of of chapter 5, and he's talked about God being the one who judges in chapter 4 of this letter. He's anticipating that day when every person will be judged. And so for that reason, we need not judge them. We need not fear them. We need not be controlled by them. Because God will ultimately judge every person. This is why Christians, all the way from 1st century Rome through to 21st century Indonesia, who've been wrongfully executed, can sing songs of praise to God. Whether they're in the Colosseum or whether they're facing the firing squad, they can worship God and forgive those who have sentenced them incorrectly because they know that God will ultimately have the final say and ultimately bring about true justice and they know that their eternal security is locked in. God judges those outside and so we shouldn't judge the outsider. We mustn't judge the outsider. This is why Westboro Baptist protests and placards always fall on deaf ears. You may have heard of them. They're a church in the US that is well known for holding up signs on street corners and yelling out things that say, you know, God hates gays. There is no gospel in that message. There is no hope offered to sinners and there is no recognition that every person, regardless of what sin might actually characterize their lives, is deserving of God's wrath, including them. Rather than leaving it to God, they have taken it upon themselves to judge the outsider. They have simply become the moral police. Isn't this so tempting for all of us, though? Maybe not holding up signs like that on the street corner. I'm not sure there are too many people who are tempted to do that. But aren't we all so easily predisposed toward behavior modification than we are to confronting sin and idolatry in the lives of our friends and our family? Don't we too easily settle for helping someone make good decisions in their life and improving their life than challenging them about sin and telling them about the gospel? How often have you heard people say things like, oh, he lives such an immoral life, he could never be a Christian. Or the opposite, she's such a nice person, it's like she's already a Christian. Such statements expose that what we actually think separates Christians from the rest of the world is our morality. No, that's not the case. This is why belonging before you believe doesn't work. Because you end up doing what you're not supposed to do. By bringing somebody into the church who hasn't actually bowed their knee to Jesus and treating them like an insider, treating them like somebody who has actually done that, 
or when the time comes for you to confront them about sin in their lives, it all falls apart. Because by enfolding somebody into the community who is actually at heart an outsider and making them feel like they're one of you when they're really not, well, it's only going to serve to make them feel rejected when they discover that they actually aren't. I always find uh, salespeople a little bit difficult to listen to because as friendly as they are, as nice as they are, I know they're trying to get to something. It's like, hey, I'm sure you're a really lovely person, but I know you're just trying to sell me something. (laughs) Is that not the same thing when we try and do the whole belong before you believe thing? And don't we so easily end up with the same result? Hey, you only loved me because you have been trying to get this message through to me? Far better for us to be upfront and honest from the beginning about what is of greatest importance. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that we become cold and unwelcoming people. Scripture makes it very clear that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that we are to show hospitality to strangers, to everybody. But it is also abundantly clear in Scripture, and especially in this passage, that one of the ways that we show incredibly deep love and hospitality to others is by being clear about the truth. And that truth is the message that all people, including us, are dead in sin and need to be raised in Christ. What separates Christians from non-Christians isn't that we're perfect and they're wicked. What separates the church from outsiders isn't that we're sinless and they're sinful. What separates us is the fact that Christians have recognized that we're sinners and that we need to be saved. And so we've turned from our sin and we've put our trust in Jesus. As Andy Nassali says, everyone is a sinner, but not everyone is a repenting sinner. Everyone is a sinner, but not everyone is a repenting sinner. The church is not made up of perfect people. To, to assume so, to think so, is to open the door to all sorts of problems. But that doesn't mean that we do nothing about our imperfections. Because you see, what happens when a person is saved, when the Holy Spirit brings their dead heart to life, and they consciously, intentionally, truly repent from their sin and put their trust in Jesus, they are made into a new creation. Paul would use this exact language in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And what comes with that new creation is a new heart, a new desire to love God with all heart, with all soul, with all mind, with all strength, and a desire to put sin to death. And that's why we should judge insiders. That's why we must 
judge insiders. And that brings us to point two. The church judges insiders. Paul asks in the second half of verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Outsiders and insiders. There's no mistaking the categories that Paul has in his mind in this chapter. Insiders are those in the church about whom the church can confidently say, I see that your profession of faith lines up with your life. Now, I've said it already, but I'll say it again to make sure you don't miss it. This doesn't mean that the church is made up of perfect people but it does mean that it is made up of repentant people who are now living for Jesus above everything else. And that means when we're confronted with sin, Christians are those who repent and seek to change. That bright line that separates outsiders and insiders is a life that is characterized by increasing measures of love for God and hatred for sin. So what exactly does this mean then for how we should judge insiders? Well, let's look at verse 11. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Paul continues from the previous section following on from the instruction that the Corinthians missed in the last letter and now he clarifies exactly what he means. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Now, just another friendly reminder that brother refers to both brothers and sisters. Replacing it with the word Christian or perhaps more specifically fellow member will help you understand who he's talking about. Did you notice in this whole chapter, in chapter 5, that Paul actually never refers to the man who's sleeping with his stepmother as a brother? Don't worry about looking it up because I've compiled a helpful slide of all the references to this man in chapter 5. You see, he refers to him as him or the one or this man the whole way through. Paul is saying that this man who is living in unrepentant, blatant, public sin, who bears the name of brother... Well, actually, he's not a brother at all. He's not truly an insider. Even though he's among you, even though you call him brother, he's really an outsider. He's a wolf with the sheep's mask on. And that's why Paul instructed them in this previous section to remove him from among them. And so Paul now goes on to expand the list of sins that would necessitate the church removing somebody from among them. Four of them he's already mentioned in verse 10, and he adds another two here. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Now this is by no means a definitive sin list. 
Uh, there are lots and lots of lists in Scripture of different sins, as well as discrete examples and references of sin. But it seems like Paul is actually doing something intentional with this list. Sexual immorality, Paul has obviously already dealt with with regard to this man, and he will go on to deal with more instances of it in this letter, especially in the next couple of chapters. Greed obviously refers to wanting more and grasping for more, which is definitely something that the Corinthians were doing. You know, they wanted to climb the social ladder and they were boasting in their so-called reigning, you might remember from chapter 4. Idolaters were easier to spot back then because Corinthians worshipped many gods and had many temples, so you could just walk down the street in Corinth and there's all sorts of idols and temples set up for different gods. And Paul will actually discuss the difficulty of interacting with food offered to in temples in chapter 8. Revilers are those who are constantly tearing others down with their words, and they do so in order to build themselves up and consider themselves to be superior. Well, we've already seen that, haven't we, over the last four chapters, that it was characteristic of the Corinthians. Drunkards are those characterized by consistent drunkenness, which often leads to other sins. And so Paul mentions this with regard to the idolatrous feasts in chapter 10 and also in the Lord's Supper in chapter 11. Swindlers are those that cheat others or act dishonestly for selfish gain. Like somebody who likes to do dodgy backroom deals or likes to get involved in schemes that rip people off. And actually Paul will tackle this in the next chapter, in chapter 6. So as you can see, Paul didn't just reach into his mental sack of different sins and decide to just grab a handful and pull them out and write them down. No, Paul is actually targeting the specific sins, the specific vices of the Corinthian church. And these are the ones that he has addressed and will address in the rest of this letter. One of the reasons we know that this isn't an exhaustive list, other than the fact that there are lists elsewhere in Scripture, is because we know that Paul is pressing his finger on the very sins that the Corinthians were prone to fall into. This is the world of Corinth. And as this letter shows us, the Christians in the church were bringing that world of Corinth, that outside world of Corinth, into the church. The Corinthians got it backwards. Rather than being salt and light to the world, they were becoming like those in the world and bringing that into the church. Paul is warning the Corinthians yet again, they must take sin seriously. Now, do you notice how he talks about these sins as things that are characteristic of a person? Those who are guilty of sexual immorality or greed? Those who are idolaters, revilers, drunkards, or swindlers? You see, Paul's not saying, if you mess up once, if any, in any of these areas, in any of these sins, then we are kicking you out in your can. And so you've got to really watch yourself. You've really got to be looking over your shoulder all the time. I mean, you only have to read the rest of the letter to realize that Corinth was steeped in sin. 
No, just like the man who was sleeping with his stepmother, Paul is referring to when somebody has lost the fight against their sin. They've come to accept it. And they've even convinced themselves that God is okay with it. Their sin now defines them more than Christ. Paul is referring to the person that you would sooner call a drunkard or a reviler or an idolater than you would call them a Christian. And Paul tells us, he tells the Corinthians, not even to eat with such a one. This is how we judge them. Now, this instruction loses some of its impact in today's society. Uh, I think we capture some of it in that we understand, uh, as Jerry Seinfeld said, that a meal is the act of sitting down with a person. It doesn't matter what you order, it doesn't matter what you eat, being in the restaurant with that somebody is the meal. And, you know, so we understand in our culture that uh, having a meal with somebody else isn't just you know, eating things that you, you need for your body and then there just happens to be somebody else who's doing the same thing on the other side of the table with you and in current restrictions a metre and a half away from you. you know, we get that, that it's not just consuming victuals together. And we know that, that having a meal is relational. But what we don't grasp is the fact that eating together in those days, in that day, said much more. As uh, commentator David Garland puts it, when Christians ate together, it reinforced and confirmed the solidarity established by their shared confession of faith in Christ. Eating together for Christians was more like the family table. Having a meal with the church was a way of saying, you're one of us. You belong to us. You are part of the family. And so when we flip to 1 Corinthians 11, we see that this certainly has implications for the Lord's Supper. Paul here is clearly, at the very least, saying that such a person should not be taking the Lord's Supper with you. But in the context of this chapter and all that Paul has already said, it is far more likely that he means even more than just this. He is saying, you must make it clear to the world that this brother or sister who bears that name is not one of you. Now, how we apply this in our day, of course, is different. Eating doesn't have the same meaning in our culture. When we have lunch as a church every Sunday afternoon, it doesn't mean the same thing that it did back then. So how do we then, as God's church in Darwin, in the 21st century, apply what Paul is talking about here? Well, let me give us two guiding principles. Firstly, this is why we have membership. When we say that the Bible teaches church membership, this is one of the things that we're talking about. This kind of association and solidarity that is a clear message to the world that says, hey, 
Aaron's one of us. She belongs to Christ. It says, Roger, he is one of us. He belongs to Christ. Is how we apply texts like this to our situation. Being a member of Emmaus Road is our equivalent of eating with one another. This is also why we don't have authority over anyone from other churches. Someone who bears the name of brother from another church is not somebody that we have responsibility over. So our obligations to them are different to those who are members of our own church. We can open scripture with them. We can lovingly, gently, as wisely as we possibly can seek to help them see where perhaps they're living in a way that is contrary to the revealed will of God in his word. We can urge them to repent. We can urge them to join a church. But ultimately, we can do nothing more. They are outside of our responsibility. This is also why we say, before taking communion together each week, that if you're a member in good standing of another church that preaches the same gospel that you hear today, then you're welcome to join us. Because communion is an ordinance that is celebrated only in the context of the church, and because communion is something that if you're visiting with us, We don't know you well enough. You're not a member of our church to know whether your profession of faith is supported by your life. And because of the severe consequences of not taking communion in a worthy manner, as Paul outlines later in chapter 11 of this letter, it's for those reasons that we say, we urge you, don't take it and consider seriously becoming a member of a church. Jesus gave the ordinance of communion not to individual professors, and by that I mean people who profess, but to the church. The bright line of separation between outsiders and insiders that Paul speaks of here is expressed in our local church through membership. Secondly, We express this separation in the way we interact with those who have been excommunicated. Now, if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to that sermon to get a clearer understanding of what I mean by excommunicated and also to get a clearer understanding of the motivation of it, which is to see a person who has Uh, who is living in unrepentant sin, be restored to Jesus and to be restored to the church? Well, the same motive underscores our actions here. We want a person who was once a member of Emmaus Road and has now shunned Jesus and been excommunicated to see that because we love them and don't want to give them a false understanding of our relationship We will do whatever it takes to see them return to Christ. We don't want them to think that everything's okay between us when at the most important level, things are fundamentally not okay between us. And they're not okay between us because things are fundamentally not okay between them and God. 
And if we truly love somebody who once bore the name of brother, who once bore the name of sister, then we would do all that we can to see them turn back to God. That would be our highest priority. And so the practicalities of this are worth discussing as a church, and I'm sure should we have to face it, then we'll need to discuss it then too. But in general, I think the rule of thumb is that we should do everything that we can to lovingly make clear that bright line. And that may mean things like not doing lunch together for a catch-up if they're not interested in genuine repentance. That may mean something like not attending parties. But it does mean making every effort to call them back to Jesus with every opportunity we have. This is not somebody who has not heard the gospel, who has never turned to Jesus. This is somebody who knows the truth and who has rejected it. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in the practical details of this because there are just way too many uh, possibilities and examples for me to cover in one sermon. And such what-ifs can easily cloud your vision from what is most important in this passage. So please hold off those questions. We can talk about them later. But the point that we need to grasp is that there are outsiders and insiders and the way we treat them and judge them is worlds apart. And so how do we reconcile all of this with Matthew 7? Well, to answer that question, as always, context is key. Oftentimes, people just quote verse 1 from Matthew 7 and rip it from its context and apply it universally in a way that they think it should be applied and in a way that doesn't take into account anything else in the Bible. Judge not that you be not judged, they say. And so we then assume and think that we know what that means. But if you read the whole passage, what you'll discover is that Jesus' point is that his disciples are not to be hypocrites. You're not to walk around thinking that you know what every other person's problem is when you've done absolutely zero reflection on your own problems and your own sin. That is the point. Do you notice how at the end of the passage, he doesn't actually say, uh, first take the log out of your own eye so you can do nothing else about it. No, he says, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. His point is that you are to look to yourself first. The gospel humbles us because it makes us realize that the only person who ever walked the earth and didn't have a log or even the tiniest little speck in his eye was Jesus. And there has been nobody else since. And that is crucial for us to remember as we think about judging insiders. You see, Matthew 7 isn't a contradiction to 1 Corinthians 5, but it actually lays down an important principle as we seek to apply this chapter. You see, it would be easy for us to start thinking, ah, yes, excellent. I am ready to judge my brothers and sisters 
bring me the wig and the gavel. No. Judging insiders also means judging you. Are you ready for that? Has the gospel humbled you to look at the log in your own eye first? And then when you can't see it or when you're struggling to see that, are you ready to have other members, other brothers and sisters come and help you to get that out? Do you trust them and do you love them enough to let them do that? Like I mentioned last week, excommunication is the last resort. This final act of church discipline comes at the end of a long road. Long before this, the church should already be doing things that are formative and doing little things that are corrective with one another in lots of little ways. The picture of the church in the Bible is one of a community that is so dedicated to one another, has such great love for one another, that we're doing little things like this all of the time. We're encouraging each other. We're spurring one another on. We're applying the Word to one another's lives. We're seeking input and correction. We're not neglecting meeting together. We're making disciples. We're evangelizing the nations. We are constantly sitting under the Word of God. And in that context of the local church, this final step is far more easily seen as the sad and tragic outcome of a hard heart that has ignored dozens of pleas to repent. I know this is difficult and awkward and countercultural. But we do it because there is far more at stake here than just ensuring we've got a, a lovely group of upstanding citizens who sing well together on Sundays. And after all, God commands us to do this. Let's look at our final verse in chapter 5 and Paul's final comment about this matter. In the second half of verse 13, Paul answers his own question. Purge the evil person from among you. You'll notice in your Bibles that there are quotation marks around that sentence. Well, that's because even though Paul doesn't say it is written, like he normally does, he's taken a phrase that is repeated nine times throughout Deuteronomy, and he's plonked it here at the end. You see, the whole purpose of what Paul is saying here goes right to the core of who God is. 
that command, which was given repeatedly in Deuteronomy, was actually given to the Israelites in the context of sins that were punishable by death. We read out one of those passages earlier. It's one of those classic Old Testament passages that many Christians have no idea what to do with. Well, let me show you another one from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now, God's holiness is not something to muck around with. His holiness is not something to be flippant with. You know, interestingly, the sins mentioned in Deuteronomy where this phrase shows up actually mirror the list that Paul gave in verse 11. So we read about the sexual sin in Deuteronomy earlier, and this verse here is referring to, corresponds to the swindler, somebody who cheats others for selfish gain. And the reason I point that out is because Paul here is clearly also envisaging some continuity between the people of Israel in the Old Testament and the church of Jesus Christ. Israel were a people chosen by God who were meant to showcase to the world what He is like. God made a covenant with them and their forefathers that bound them to keep the law that God gave them. And one of the reasons they were meant to keep it was so that they could be God's holy people who displayed His holiness to the world. And that's why there are so many laws in the Old Testament. That's why this idea of purging the evil from among you is not just in Deuteronomy in the form of this phrase, but it is throughout the whole Old Testament, in other instructions, through narrative, in poetry, in prophecy, and in wisdom literature. Israel was to purge the evil person from among them because by keeping those commands and by being faithful to the covenant God made with them, they would display God's holiness to the watching world. But they could not. The law only served to show how far they fell short. The law only proved time and time again that they couldn't follow it perfectly. The reading from Judges that we read earlier shows how they failed time and time again. They didn't listen to the judges. They didn't obey the commandments. They didn't keep the covenant. They needed a judge that would keep them pursuing the Lord even after He died. They needed a judge who could live a life fully devoted and submitted to God, perfectly obeying all of His laws without making a single misstep. They needed a judge who could be perfectly holy, as God is holy, and represent them so that God's covenant could be kept. Jesus was that judge. Jesus came as the judge who was able to keep the covenant and display God's holiness. He was the judge who came and was able to show the world what perfect love, perfect justice, and perfect holiness looks like. And Jesus came preaching the gospel. 
the good news that the kingdom of God had come near in him and that all who repent and who turn from their sin and put their faith in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, as Christians, we don't use this language of outsiders and insiders with pride because we're all outsiders. Without Jesus, we all still stand condemned under God's righteous condemnation, under His righteous wrath for our sin. But because Jesus went to the cross, because out of love for those that God had given Him, He endured the cross and He received the wrath of God that should have rightly been poured out on us. He became an outsider so that we could become insiders. With his blood, he established a new covenant. A covenant that people enter into by faith. A covenant that isn't determined by the class or the ethnicity of your birth. A covenant that isn't determined by how well you can follow the law. A covenant that doesn't result in a new nation, but that results in a new church. Jesus has created a new people for himself, made up entirely of people who were once outsiders. A people who are still called to display God's holiness to the world, but who do so now as one's who've been saved by grace and not by the law. A people who are not trying to attain perfection by their own merit, but by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. A people who are no longer a nation, but a light to the nations. Who are sent to the nations, to create outposts of the kingdom of heaven called churches. Churches are to be representations of the kingdom that is to come. They are to represent the great king and the great judge who will one day return and renew his creation, who will judge all of mankind and who will return for his bride the church. Jesus will glorify his bride. He will completely remove their sin and they will live for eternity with him. That is why this is so crucial. If we blur the line, if we dim that bright line that separates those outside and those inside the church, then it confuses the watching world and it distorts our representation of God. We no longer execute the sinner, but we excommunicate them. Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that love continues to make that line clear. As Jamie Dunlop says in the book Compelling Community, 
if you want a fire to burn bright and to burn hot so that it can provide light and heat to others, then you don't take the coals and then spread them all around the room and put all sorts of other stuff in between them. No, you don't do that. You bring them in. You put them close together. And so it is with the church. The more we water down the fact that a Christian is a repenting sinner who is always growing, the more we water down the church's responsibility of judging its own, the more we water down the necessity for a Christian to be a committed member of a church who loves their brothers and sisters and seeks their spiritual good and opens themselves up to be discipled by them. The more we water that down, the more we will put out the fire and fail to light up the world with the wonder and the power and the glory of the gospel. And that's already happening, isn't it? Instead of being known as people who don't judge outsiders and who out of love judge insiders Christians instead are known as people who love to judge outsiders and who turn a blind eye to the sin of those in their churches who bear the name of brother what a tragedy The church, our church, must recover what this passage is teaching to us. We must get our jurisdictions right. And we will only do it when we look to the perfect judge who perfectly kept the covenant, who took our place on the cross and made it possible for outsiders to be welcomed into his kingdom. You know, the funny thing is that judge not that you be not judged is actually a true statement if it's applied biblically. But, but if by that statement we mean that we should neglect this task of judging one another as God's church, then we've missed the point. If by it we mean that we should be a community of people who don't disciple one another, who don't talk about our own sin with one another, who don't point out to one another if we've gone too far or if we're starting to get comfortable with our own sin, then we've missed the point. God has created a people for himself who have entered into a new covenant with him through the blood of his son, Jesus so that we might represent him to the world. Will we, as his church, disciple and judge those inside out of zeal for his holiness and out of immense love for one another? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, these things are difficult for us. We acknowledge that our own sin causes us to drift into what is comfortable, causes us to drift into not seeing your glory and your honour in our lives and in our church as a far higher priority than our own comfort. Father, forgive us for the times when we treat your holiness flippantly, for the times when we do not consider truly how awesome and wonderful your grace is to us. Lord, please help us to always be in awe of the fact that Jesus became an outsider so that we could be welcomed into your family and into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.